Friday, we talked about the curse of sin and how the effects of Adam's sin in this world just ripples out into all of creation. That This world, um, like a washing machine set off balance, is bouncing and rattling and threatening to tear itself apart with the Lord not restraining it. And, and this little blip on the radar of human suffering called coronavirus is just, is just one more painful reminder one more mark on a long and blood-stained list of things that have plagued humanity. Things that make our hearts scream out, this world is not as it should be. Something's desperately wrong here. It points us back again to how our sin has separated us from, from the goodness of God. And it creates in our hearts this aching, this desperate longing, this searching for a cure. And we saw Good Friday. That cure is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's it right there. Jesus hanging on that cross. A man hung on a tree is symbolism, biblical symbolism of the curse of God poured out on him. The curse, the punishment that we deserved falling on his shoulders. The crown made of thorns. Again, this biblical symbol of of the effects of sin in this world. The breakdown of sin and death infecting everything, causing everything from from hurricanes to cancer is, is coming to rest on him. And of course, the temple, curtain torn top to bottom. This picture of how his death has opened the way that sinful man could now approach the holy God, could be reconciled to him, our relationship with him restored. On the cross, Jesus bore the pain, paid the price that we deserved so that we could be set free, set free from the curse of sin. But that's only half the story. That's that's less than half the story. On Good Friday, we remember that that in his death, he bore our death. But Resurrection Sunday, we remember, we celebrate that in his life, we have life. That's our task this morning, to look at the the result of this glorious cure, the, the outcome going forward. What do we have now? And one of the beautiful places to see that promise of life begins in the darkness. Begins meeting Martha right in the middle of her experience of sin. The curse at its worst. We're going to look at John chapter 11 this morning. Turn with me there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible on you, um, go grab one. You're going to want to have it. Um, You can open up the extra tab on your browser, bring up esv.org. If you really don't have a Bible at home, we want to emphasize again, we want you to have one. Um, Private message us, give us your address. We will bring a freshly sanitized copy of God's Word right to your door. Um, We want you to have God's Word in your hands. Um, I have no hope for you. I have no authority to speak against the things that are happening in this world. 
God's Word does. And so that's all I have to say this morning, is what God's Word has already said. John chapter 11, Martha's brother had become sick. Possibly the earliest recorded case of coronavirus, probably something else. They sent word to Jesus, hoping that he would come and and heal him. They had seen him do miracles before. Jesus, come. He's sick. The one that you love, they say, is sick. But Jesus never comes. They wait day after day after day. He never came. Her brother grew weaker and weaker and finally died. This is it. This is the darkness. This is the curse of sin coming into action. He's dead. Those of us who have lost close loved ones, you know this feeling. They're crushed. They're weeping. They're grieving over the loss of their dear brother, crying out in frustration against this broken world, against the pain of death, that deep, searing pain of Loss, those moments of disbelief, that feeling of absolute helplessness, wondering, will this pain ever let up? Will it ever go away? He wasn't an old man. So far as we know, he was otherwise healthy. No doubt he had much to live for. And all too quickly, completely unexpectedly, he's been ripped away from them. Finally, they heard that Jesus was on his way but it's too little too late. Their brother was already dead and and Jesus approached. Martha ran out to meet him on the road. Verse 21, she says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We've seen your miracles. Jesus, we know what you can do. You could have stopped this, but you weren't here. Verse 22, then, She has some hope of what could maybe still be done. Even now I know, Lord, that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. And yet we wonder, does she really believe that? Because Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And she dismisses it. I think that would have been a a common Jewish consolation. And she brushes it off. I know he'll rise again at the resurrection. But the implication is, what about now? What about the pain that we have now? What about the suffering around us now, Lord? What are you doing about the curse today? And Jesus answers her in verse 25. And and this is the passage I want us to, to turn our attention to this morning. Verses 25 to 27. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Would you pray with me? Father, We so identify with Martha, crying out in this broken world. What are you doing now, Lord? Where are you, Lord? There is pain and suffering around us. We are so prone to hopelessness, 
to frustration, to weariness in this broken world. Lord, would you open our eyes this resurrection Sunday morning to see your glory again, to see the life that is in Christ and how his resurrection is our hope, is our joy. God, would you build us up, strengthen us, Lord, that we might see you as you are, that we might walk in faith in you today. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Martha's looking forward to that final resurrection, looking forward to a, a day of life off in the distance someday, something intangible, ethereal. Yes, Lord, I know that he'll rise in the resurrection, a, a day of hope someday. And the first thing Jesus does in this passage is, is shows her, I'm not content with that. That's not good enough. Jesus redirects her focus. And, and the first thing we see here is that, that Jesus is life. He is life. Shockingly, he begins this statement with a redundant and emphatic statement in the Greek, ego eimi, I, I am. It's awkward. It's redundant. Why does he say it that way? Well, the way that Jesus says it and the fact that there are seven such I am statements placed throughout the book of John um, makes it very clear what Jesus is saying. He's not just saying, it's me who is the light, who is the life. He's saying, I am, in a way that parallels the Hebrew Yahweh, which could also be translated, I, I am. It's the personal name of God. He's saying, I am that I am. I am God, and I am the resurrection and the life. John 5, 26 Jesus says, for the Father has life in himself. And so he has granted to the Son also to have life in himself. Everything else that has life has a beginning. That life came from somewhere. That life has a source from outside of itself. But Jesus, as God, like the Father, has life in himself. It's part of the very essence of his being. He exists as life. John 1, 4, Jesus, or this is said of Jesus, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. Jesus is life. Jesus is himself the resurrection. And so it shouldn't surprise us. Good Friday ended in darkness. Jesus' blood left, staining the wooden cross in pools on the ground. His body taken cold and limp off the cross, wrapped in a cloth, thrown into a cold stone tomb. And there it lay, Friday night, Saturday, nothing. The disciples, his friends, his family, they, they wept, they grieved, they hid, terrified, feeling the darkness of the curse of sin pressing in around them. What did this mean? Is this the end? Have we been wrong about him all along? 
And then Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary made their way to the tomb expecting to anoint his lifeless body with perfume, still trying to process what they had seen and heard over the last three years and and how it could possibly have come to this. And then rather than being greeted by the stench of death, they're greeted by an angel who says, of course he's not here. He's risen just as he said he would. He took the curse of sin, the wrath of God, the the punishment of death, and he drank that cup right to the bottom. And just as darkness is overcome by light, so death is overcome by life. And so Jesus being life in himself, as Paul says, death was swallowed up in victory. Jesus rose from the grave. He proved this claim that, that he is life. As he rose from the grave. So many today, I fear, have what Martha seemed to have. A vague hope of future life. Something out there. According to Barna Research Group, uh, even 40% of people who, who say they are not Christians still believe in a heaven. So many, especially in times like these, will have these kind of generic, vague, pithy statements of of hope on the horizon of someday. In the face of death, they'll they'll say, oh, he's, he's in a better place now. He's at rest now. He is at peace. What do they mean by that? What exactly is it that they're looking forward to and how do they expect to get there? Now, Martha was... A step better than that. Her hope was not misguided. It was built on the the promises and the prophecies of the Old Testament. It wasn't empty. It was anchored in understanding that there would be a resurrection, that, that God would be faithful. But it was still incomplete. It still fell short. And I think there are many today who find themselves in that position. They've heard the stories of Jesus go to church, they know there's a God. They believe that there will be a resurrection and a life someday, but their belief is still incomplete. It still falls short. It's still this vague sense of something future. And they aren't entirely sure how they're going to get there. If I just live a good enough life, I I go to church, I, I give in the offering, I try to be kind to people, I hope I'll make it. But when darkness and suffering really press in, like it was on Martha on that day, that crumbles. That vague sense of hope just isn't enough. It doesn't bring the the comfort and hope that we need in the darkness. And frankly, if you die with that kind of generic hope and stand before the judgment seat of the Lord, it won't cut it there either. It's not enough. It's not enough to to hope in a life to come, to have some vague confidence that that there's going to be a resurrection and, and I hope on that day I'll be on God's good side. Jesus says to Martha, don't put your hope in some vague resurrection. I am the resurrection. I am the life. If you want to know resurrection and life clearly and correctly and confidently, you need to know me. Put your hope in me. 
John 17, 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He is life. Apart from him, there is no life. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The resurrection Eternal life are found in the person of Jesus Christ. That's where our hope ought to be. So here's the test. Do you want to know for sure that you will have resurrection, eternal life someday? Well, you need to ask, do I know Jesus today? Do I have him? Because he is life. He is that resurrection. Him personally, not some vague generalized hope. Not, not some, some kind of ethereal belief. Do I actually have a real, personally meaningful relationship with Jesus today? Jesus is the resurrection and the life. You can't separate the two. And, and so to reject Jesus is to reject life. And even to just slightly miss Jesus is to miss life. To have Jesus is to have the resurrection and the life because Jesus is life. To know him is to have confidence that, that I know life, that I have the resurrection already in having him. First, Jesus is the life. Secondly, Jesus gives life. Looking at verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus not only is the life, he gives life. Martha met Jesus. Still on the road, on the way to Bethany, the town where they were at. And after telling her that he is the resurrection and the life, Jesus went with her into the town. And if you look at verse 38, just flip over one page. We read this account. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. For he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around me, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus! Come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him, let him go. Jesus gives life. He proved it, calling a man out from the tomb who had been dead for four days. At the sound of his name, he's. He stands up and he walks out. Jesus is putting on display again his power over the curse. 
His ability to give life. Now look back at verses 25 and 26. Anybody find that confusing? Jesus says, Though they will die, they will have life. And then he says, Those who have life will never die. So which is it, Jesus? It doesn't make any sense. I think we often miss what the Bible is saying because because we kind of give it a pass for being confusing. We're reading along and we come to a statement like this and and, and we just kind of subtly think in our heads, huh, that doesn't make any sense, but the Bible's confusing, so carry on. Or maybe sometimes it's out of a misguided sense of respect for the Bible. That doesn't seem to make sense, but but the Bible can't be wrong, so I'm not going to question it. And I wonder if behind that sometimes is a fear that if I push, it might break. I believe that the Bible is always true, and so I don't want to ask hard questions because I don't want to find questions that I can't answer. I don't want to find holes. I don't want to look too close. But we should be ready and willing as we come across statements like this to say, that doesn't make sense. That sounds contradictory. That sounds crazy. And and rather than moving on or giving it a pass, we say, well, I I know the Bible is often confusing and I know that it's never wrong, so I'm going to press in all the more. I'm going to push on this because I trust the Bible. I trust that I can ask it my hard questions and that this will make sense if I work at it. The problem's not with Scripture. The problem's with me. I want to understand this. And and I think as we push on this a little bit, it's fairly clear. Jesus is saying two slightly different things. First, he's saying... Those who believe in him will have life after death. There's going to be a resurrection. Jesus gives life after death because of what he did on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin. Whoever believes in him will, like him, be resurrected from the grave. They will die, but death is not the end. Death is not final. Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, 19, Because I live, you too shall live. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 23 should be on the screen for you. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam... All die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So, so Jesus is the firstfruits. His resurrection is the first of a great harvest. And like a, like a locomotive um, where the, the train cars follow the engine, where Jesus goes, we follow, we go after Jesus' resurrection first, and then at his coming, our resurrection. Looking at Jesus on Resurrection Sunday, we see our future. We see our guarantee, our confident hope that death is not the end for us. It's looking at the the picture of, uh, of our dear friend Ross just this morning as I was preparing this sermon and thinking, what a blessed hope. What, what sweet rejoicing there is in the midst of sorrow. It was our first funeral as a church just a month and a half ago. But 
there's going to be a resurrection. Death is not the end for him. And so, whoever believes in me, though they die, yet they shall live. And then what does it mean when he goes on to say, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die? He just said they would die. Now he says they won't die. And and either Jesus is crazy or he means something slightly different. I'm going to go with the second option. And I think it's pretty clear as we understand this. Everyone who believes in him will never die. And and so, yes, those, those who believe in him will experience physical death. That's an inescapable reality in our broken world. And yet everyone who believes in Jesus lives, lives now with a life that will not be touched by death. John 3, that famous conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And and Jesus tells Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Not born physically, he already had physical life. He needed spiritual life. He needed a new life. Jesus gives that life, a life that can never be taken away. Uh, Ephesians 2, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, because of his great love for us, made us alive together with Christ. This is this new spiritual life in us. And John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Do you you hear the past tense and the present tense to that verse? Not you will one day have life, you have life now in Jesus. Because of the resurrection, because of what Jesus accomplished at Easter, because of the empty tomb, we have life in him, life now that will be eternal. Life that will pass through physical death, unscathed. Our hope of life in Christ is not somewhere out there. It's not something we're waiting for far off in the distance. It's it's here and now. So let's bring this down to where the rubber meets the road. What does that mean for us today? It means that in spite of all the chaos, in spite of COVID-19, in spite of the threat or for some the reality of having lost a job, the stock market crashing, everything being uncertain, in spite of whatever events that you were looking forward to that have all been canceled now, and getting beyond that, there are so many trials in this life, there are so many things that that pain us, that bring us sorrow and grief in this broken, broken world. And in spite of all of it, not only has Jesus taken the curse of death, that we deserved on himself, but he gives us life. And so, yes, we're grieved and and we wrestle with difficult things in this life. There's hardship and trial and struggle and the effects of sin in this world are painful. As Jesus talked with Martha on the way to Bethany, he told her that, that he was the resurrection and the life He had every intention of raising Lazarus from the grave. He knew what was about to happen. And yet we're told that as he entered the town, verse 33, it says, When Jesus saw her weeping, 
and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Jesus, greatly troubled, deeply moved. And verse 35, Jesus wept. Why? He knew that he was about to raise Lazarus. He of all people could see this true life clearer than anyone. But he weeps because death is still tragic. It's still painful. It's still the evidence of this broken, sinful world and a corruption that should never have been. Because the havoc of sin continues to to bring brokenness in our world. It still hurts. And so I love how Paul encourages the the saints in in Thessalonica. He says, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep. And by that he means those who have died. We don't want you to be uninformed. We want you to know the truth that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So we grieve. We do grieve. We bear the burden of of sin in this world and its effects and the hardships and trials. We grieve, but we do not grieve like those who have no hope. There's something different about our grief. Paul says of himself in 2 Corinthians 6, we are sorrowful but always rejoicing. I don't often put those two together. But Paul was sorrowful and always rejoicing. The truth of the resurrection, the reality of having this spiritual life in Christ here and now that is untouchable and unshakable ought to produce in us a hope. A hope that gives us joy and even rejoicing that runs deep and full and strong beneath the surface. And so we grieve and we weep over the pain in this world, but it's always diluted. It's always mixed with rejoicing in one hand. Because we have life. Because even in the face of death, our greatest enemy, we know there is victory. Because Jesus, who is life, gives life. Does your life reflect that? That overarching joy? That foundation that can't be shaken? Do your your conversations reflect that these days? Does your Facebook account reflect that? Does Does your inner thought monologue reflect that underlying rejoicing and hope in the life that we have in Christ? Church, in the midst of a world that is so caught up, overcome by anxiety and fear, what an opportunity we have to point to the hope of a resurrected Savior. In a world that has been so comfortable for so long, that has been shielded by relative health and and saturated in, in wealth and materialism and distracted by the allure of success and productivity, and all of that has just come to a screeching halt. So many people are knocked off balance or are wondering. And as believers whose ultimate hope and joy has always been something outside of this world, whose, whose roots have long been pulled up out of this world and sunken deep into Christ, into the kingdom of God, we should be as lovingly vocal as ever. A hope of a risen Savior. He is life and He gives life. 
But we've been making one huge assumption along the way. Jesus has kind of weaved it in through his words so far, and I've been attempting to do the same, and now Jesus makes it explicit, and so we'll follow suit. Jesus said to Mary, I'm the resurrection and the life. And then I can only imagine he turned to her, looked her straight in the eye, maybe turned her face toward his and said, do you believe this? Jesus is life and he gives life, listen, to those who believe. Do you believe this? Martha answered the question in a way that shows she understands. She understands what he's asking. She responds in verse 27. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. There's so much packed into that response. She doesn't just say, I believe that you give life. She expands on who he is. She believes that that he is the Christ. Now, just to give you a little language lesson here, um, let me follow the chain. Christ is is actually a made-up word. We just stole it straight from the Greek. The Greek is Christos. And, and, And Christos actually has the same meaning as the Hebrew word Messiah. And it means anointed one, the chosen one. And so she's drawing on rich biblical history, verse after verse after verse throughout the Old Testament, going all the way back to Genesis 3.15. In the middle of the curse, God promised to send a man born of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent, one who would undo all of the damage of sin, undo, destroy the works of the devil, And all of the Old Testament is just building on that promise, looking forward, explaining more, building anticipation, looking forward to its fulfillment. And Martha is saying, it's you, Jesus. You're the one that all of human history has been driving toward. You're the one that we've been waiting for. You're the one who has come to set all things right. The one who will bring an end to the curse. You're the Messiah. And then she adds, the Son of God. She's picking up on what he just said a moment ago. Using the name of God, I am, to refer to himself. And this was no secret. Jesus did this frequently. He was often accused of blasphemy. And she says, not only are you the anointed one, the promised one that we've been waiting for, but you are God himself. The rescuer was God. Come into this world. You're the Son of God. And so there's some theological understanding here of of who Jesus is as God, as the promised Messiah, the one who would come to end the curse. But, But that's not the emphasis here. That's not actually what Jesus is asking her for. He didn't say, do you know this? He didn't say, what do you know about me? So often we pull up short here. There's so many in this world today, even in the church, I dare say even listening right now, who would say, yes, I know who Jesus is. And that's enough. 
thinking that, that that will save you, thinking that it's by your knowing that you will enter into the life that Jesus has offered, but that's not what Jesus is asking here. He says, do you believe this? You say, well, what's the difference, John? Isn't knowing even better than believing? Right? Believing seems kind of vague. Oh, I believe it to be true. No, I know it's true. Uh, no. No, you're not understanding what Jesus is saying. The word here is pistuo, um, the same word that is often translated faith throughout the New Testament. And it's not just this kind of passive acknowledgement of truth. I know that's true. He's not asking her, do you think these things are true? The kind of belief that he's asking for, true faith, is an active trusting and resting in. The kind of belief that changes the way that you live. There are countless millions in North America who say, I believe in Jesus, and it doesn't change a lick about the way they live their life and who they are. They, they believe in Jesus, but they trust in and they hope in and they live running after all the things of this world. Martha, on the other hand, says, Yes, Lord, I believe. She doesn't just admit the truth of who he is, though that's important. She submits herself to it. She says, you're my Lord. You're my master, and I believe in you. I've put my trust in you. I'm going to live in accordance with who you are. I will define my reality by this truth. Do you believe in that way? I don't care if you know about Jesus. You need to believe him in a way that changes your life, in a way that transforms your hopes and your dreams and your hobbies and your aspirations, your thoughts and your words, your life. That is, by the way, what this new life that Jesus gives looks like. You can't separate the two as if Faith may or may not someday produce obedience. But rather, obedience to him, following after him, is, is just what faith looks like. Think about it this way. There are two Easter dinners set before you. One, you're told, is riddled with poison and will surely kill you. The other is magical and will give you perfect health, lasting health. You can say all day long, I believe you, but if you continue to feast undeterred at the poison table, eventually at some point I'm going to conclude, you don't believe me. No matter what your mouth says, you don't believe me. That's why repentance and faith go together so neatly and often are used even interchangeably. Repentance means turning from sin. Faith means trusting in Christ. There, there's two sides of the same coin. And so, I just want to challenge you this morning. If you say you have faith, but you continue to feast in the things of the world, you continue to look for life and joy in earthly things rather than in Christ, you continue in, in disobedience to Christ rather than submission to Him as Lord, It's time to turn away from passive, empty words of belief. Christ is calling you to trust Him, 
Trust Him in a way that changes everything. Because guess what? That feast that the world offers, it is poison. It comes and says, find your your joy and purpose and meaning in life, in in health, in in success, in in self-serving freedom. It says, go ahead, leave your spouse. You do what makes you happy. It says, give your life to your career. Jesus can wait. It says, you know what? Just just go after the the temporary pleasure of of pursuing, uh, perusing the internet all night after your spouse has gone to bed. It says, look out for number one. Keep yourself first and make sure no one gets the better of you. It says, put your pride and your hope and your morality and your pristine life and you go ahead and look down on others. It offers 10,000 different ways for you to find satisfaction and life. But 1 John 2.15 says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world and its desires are passing away. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world and its desires are are passing, they're fleeting. Whoever does the will of God perseveres. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Whoever actually puts true transforming faith in him in a way that changes everything. Because he is not passing away. Indeed, he is risen and he lives forevermore. And and he is passed through death. He is risen and he gives life to all who come to him in true faith. Truly trusting Him. If you have that faith, if you are seeking after Him, again, not perfectly, none of us does, but consistently learning to to push away the morsels from that poison table and to feast on Christ, to find our life in Him. And we have hope. We have confidence in who He is. We walk in in victory and joy, looking at the empty tomb, knowing that He is life and He gives life as we seek after Him. Because whoever believes in Him, though He dies, yet shall He live. And whoever lives and believes in Him will never die. That's the life promised purchased and delivered by our crucified and resurrected Savior. How fitting then, as Christ left us a way to remember his death on our behalf, to hold on to that hope that we have in him and and cling to it tightly, and he did it with a meal, food and drink, the essentials of life. It's a picture of true faith. I invite the worship team to join me. We're going to celebrate communion together. And and as we do, what are we saying other than, I want to feast at the table of Christ. I want to be fed and satisfied and delighted in Him. He is the sustenance of my life. 
He is my food. He is my drink. He is what I need. My life depends on Him. We're going to sing together in a moment. Have your communion elements ready, and after the song, we'll partake together. But let me give the warning that Paul gives in Scripture. If you're not walking in that true faith, if you're not saying uh, with more than just words, but actual life-changing faith, yes, Lord, I believe, then you need to hold off. You need to not participate this morning. It would not be safe for you to partake of communion if you're living in unrepentant sin, unapologetically feasting at the table of the world and then coming to communion. Paul says that many have become sick and even died because they've taken the Lord's Supper without truly considering what it means. But for those of us who live and believe in Him, oh, church, don't be misunderstood. We're still plagued by sin. We still have those longings, those failings, some days flat on our face. We walk in repentance turning our hearts back to Christ, repenting of sin, seeking after Him. He's our life. He's our hope. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of the Father, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? He is the hope of our future resurrection and he is the hope and essence of our present life so we're going to sing together praise his name and then uh, we'll partake in a moment